our scripture reading. Our first scripture reading today comes from uh, Genesis 11, which you'll know is the uh, story of the Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and fire them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in heaven. And let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. Our New Testament reading is from John chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 14 through 16. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And our sermon text today is from the book of Exodus. Uh, This will be verses uh, 8 through 22. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look! The Israelites' people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase. And in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them. With forced labor, they built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians subjected the Israelites to hard servitude and made their lives bitter with hard servitude and mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whose name was Shifra and the other Puah, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and sit them on the birth stool, if it is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dwelt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw him into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So we are continuing our series in Exodus. Now, you'll remember last week that the big point that I was trying to make was it is important for us 
that when we read Exodus, we read it along with Genesis. Exodus is going to make a lot of references back to Genesis. And so if we're to understand the message of Exodus, we have to keep Genesis in mind. And last week I drew out uh, some of those connections to make the point that though God does not appear and seems silent in the beginning of Exodus, there is evidence of God at work everywhere. Now what I want to do today is make another connection with Genesis in this passage and specifically about the Pharaoh. Uh, Exodus introduces Pharaoh by describing him as a new king who did not know Joseph. And so there's uh, two pharaohs here. There's the pharaoh uh, in Genesis, uh, who is the pharaoh who knew Joseph. And then there's this new pharaoh, the pharaoh who does not know Joseph. And there's a contrast being drawn between these two. Uh, The pharaoh back in Genesis in the Joseph story recognized that there was something special about Joseph. The Pharaoh in the Genesis story goes so far as to declare that the Spirit of God is with Joseph. The Pharaoh in Genesis listens to Joseph and follows Joseph's advice. And Egypt is saved from a severe famine. Now, by contrast, the Pharaoh of Exodus sees the descendants of Joseph as a threat. According to the Pharaoh, the Israelites are too many and mighty. And specifically, Pharaoh is worried that if the enemies of Egypt were to invade, the Israelites might side with their enemies. So notice, though, in the text, the Israelites really haven't done anything wrong. They haven't done anything bad. There's really, uh, they've done nothing other than exist. Pharaoh's concern here is only hypothetical. Uh, The Israelites themselves have given Pharaoh no specific reason to fear them. So whereas the Pharaoh in Genesis saw the Israelites and their blessings as an asset, the Pharaoh of Exodus views their blessing as something to fear. And Pharaoh responds to this uh, fear, which the text is showing us is irrational, by oppressing the Israelites, forcing them to make bricks for his store cities. Now, his plan fails. As verse 12 tells us, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And so what does Pharaoh do? He responds by doubling down on the oppression, which also fails to work. Next, Pharaoh calls the midwives and orders them to kill every male Israelite. The midwives defiantly refuse to do so, and so they cleverly deceive Pharaoh. And as verse 20 tells us, the result of Pharaoh's plans is that the Israelites multiply and become very strong. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the midwives this week. However, uh, don't worry if, if this whole story about Shifra and Pua is like really cool to you. Uh, they're basically going to get their own sermon in a couple of weeks. Uh, I actually realized about uh, three quarters of the way through this sermon that that would probably make an excellent topical Mother's Day sermon. <laughs> but anyway... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you can have that later on. Yeah, anyway, uh, so, so, so don't worry that, it, it, you know, that I'm skipping Shifra and Pua there. Um, they're pretty, really cool and super important. But uh, for our purposes today, notice the progression of the story. Pharaoh determines that the Israelites are more, more and mightier than the Egyptians, and Pharaoh presses them, and the Israelites multiply and spread. 
he resorts to execution. And now what happens? The Israelites become, uh, multiply and become very mighty. And so Pharaoh's attempts to suppress the Israelites increase in severity, but the result is the Israelites become even more numerous and mighty. Pharaoh's plans have completely backfired. He's achieved the opposite uh, result that he desired. So when this, uh, this chapter closes with Pharaoh's new plan, which was to throw the male babies into the Nile, we're already anticipating that that plan too will fail. But that's a sermon for another week. Now, notice too that uh, by reading Exodus through Genesis, Pharaoh here becomes more than just a bad guy in the story. So he's not just a, you know, the bad guy here. As we discussed last week, God has created the universe for abundance, fertility, and life. That's the big message of Genesis. Now, after the fall in Genesis 3, we see humans beginning with Cain and ending with Babel destroy God's purposeful creation by introducing violence and death into the world. So, so God intends for uh, fertility and life. Uh, humans come in, uh, they're corrupt, and they uh, introduce violence and death. And it was Abraham who was called to be the solution to this problem. Abraham and his family were chosen and they were blessed in order to be a blessing and bring life and fertility back into creation. That's the story of Genesis. Uh, so that means when we come to Exodus and the uh, descendants of Abraham are being contained, they're being impressed, they're being enslaved, and they're being murdered, Pharaoh is not just being a big jerk here. In this story, Pharaoh is actually an anti-God. He's working to actively suppress God's plan to bring salvation to his creation. He is an anti-creation force. He is the opposite of abundance and fertility here. So not only is there a contrast between, uh, between the Pharaoh in Genesis and the Pharaoh of Exodus, but there's also a contrast here between God and Pharaoh. God is characterized by blessing fertility of life, while Pharaoh's actions are characterized by oppression, reduction, and death. So what we have in Exodus here is a contest. And it's a contest being presented of two different models of power. God's way of power and Pharaoh's way of power. Now, the question I have is I read this text. And the question I want to answer today is why does Pharaoh behave the way he does? Why? You know, it's easy just to write him off as a bad guy. But why is he a bad guy? Why does he see the multiplication of the Israelites and immediately see them as a threat? According to the text, they've done nothing. Furthermore, why does Pharaoh then keep doubling down despite the fact that Pharaoh's plans don't achieve the results he desires? So I want to spend some time on this because I think that the answer to this question is actually pretty profound. And the text is trying to teach us something about the human condition. It's trying to teach us something about power and how power is being exercised. So this isn't just about Pharaoh. This isn't just uh, some historical example. Uh, Instead, Pharaoh is a symbol, a type, uh, that we find all throughout human history on large and small scales. We're going to find it in great empires. We're going to find it in corporations. We're going to find it in governments. We're going to find it in workplaces, and sadly, even churches. Uh, 
any places where there are hierarchy and their power dynamics, we will find these forces at work. Now, in order to answer this question, it should be no surprise that what we are going to do is look back to Genesis. So you will notice from our sermon text that Pharaoh is introduced. And Pharaoh's first words in verse 9 are, Come, let us act wisely toward them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies. Okay? So, so listen, listen to the, the, the way that, that sentence is set up. Come, let us, and then lest, they multiply and act according to their enemies. That actually sounds exactly like our passage that we read from Genesis, okay? So in Genesis 11:4, listen to the words of the tower of the builders of Babel. Come, let us build ourselves a city and tower with its top to the heaven and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered upon the face of the earth. So you, you see the reputation of that phrase, come let us, less, okay? It's the same construction in Hebrew. Then, of course, we have the mention of the mortar and brick in verse 14. So the Israelites are, are told to, to, to use the brick and mortar, okay? Just like the tower builders uh, are using brick and mortar in verse 14 of Genesis 11. Now, uh, do note, the tower builders were not just building a tower, but also a city, okay? They're not just building the, the tower of Babel, they're building the city and tower of Babel. And what are the Israelites forced to do? They're forced to build storage cities for Pharaoh. So lots of connections here. You know, maybe on the surface, you don't really see it. It doesn't jump out at you. But clearly, this passage wants to connect what's going on in Pharaoh uh, in the Exodus with the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, I briefly made this connection last week. You'll remember Mason earned 500 resurrection points even for noticing that the brick and mortar were from the Babel story. But I was only using that as a supporting example. What I want to do today is dive deeper and see how we can understand Exodus and answer our question about the Pharaoh by looking at the Babel story. So back to Genesis. So at the end of the flood story in Genesis 9, uh, God issues the command for humanity to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay, so themes again of fertility and life and, and multiplication. Genesis 10 contains a record of humanity doing just that and talks about uh, there's, you know, a genealogy of the descendants of Noah, and it talks about them going separate ways and filling the earth. But in Genesis 11, we see something different happen. We have a group of people who find a place that they like, and they decide to build a city and a tower. And what's their motivation? Their motivation for this plan is fear. As verse 4 says, they are worried, they are fearful, about being dispersed over the face of the earth. In other words, the opposite of God's intention for humanity. God wanted them to fill the earth. They don't want to fill the earth. They want to come together and, and, as one. They wish to make a name for themselves by building a tower with its top into heaven. In other words, they are challenging God by intruding into his divine realm for their own glory. Like Adam and Eve, they see their own wisdom 
as superior to God's wisdom. Notice, uh, again, like I said, mentioned previously, the text mentions that they build not just a tower, but a city. Now, the tower is what always captures our imagination in this story. That's what we always think about. But the word city is actually mentioned in this uh, passage more often than tower. Now, uh, I mention this because it's important uh, for how we think about uh, Babel. We need to think about it in terms of a city. So, for 1,000 resurrection points, who can tell me where the Bible first mentions a city? Cain. Yes, Dan, a thousand resurrection points awarded to you. So it's actually back in Genesis chapter 4. After Cain kills his brother Abel, God exiles Cain to be a wandering fugitive. So Cain objects to this punishment and because he believes that he will be hunted and killed. And so God promises to protect Cain. Uh, graciously, I might add, after since why is he a wandering fugitive? Because he killed his brother. Cain then promptly goes and he builds a city and names it after his son Enoch. Now, here's the thing you need to know. Uh, the, there's, a, there's a specific Hebrew word that's used here for city. It's ear, okay? And, and, and the word ear, when you read the word ear, it has a key feature to it. The only reason, uh, or, or the reason you use the word ear is because it's not just like a group of people all gathered together. It's a wall. In order for it to be an ear, it has to have a wall. Okay, now why is that important? Why do you build a wall? It's hard to build a wall, okay? I never built a wall, but I've seen like those stone walls, and I just think, that's a lot of work. So why do you build walls? Because you want to keep something out, Okay. Uh, you want to keep something out because you're trying to protect yourselves. You do it out of fear. So do you see the logic here? Uh, by building a walled enclosure, what Cain has signaled to us in this story is that he has rejected God's provision of protection. God promised to protect him. What Cain's doing is he's saying, I don't want your protection. I'm going to provide for my own protection and I'm going to do it by building a walled city, and I'm going to name it after my son, Enoch. Now, notice how this story of Babel has a continuation of these same themes, right? Just as Cain has rejected God's provision of protection, the people in the Babel story reject God's command to fill the earth. They provide for themselves. They challenge God's authority. They wish to live autonomously, making a name for themselves apart from God. Of course, their project ends in God's judgment because God knows the evil that will result from their uh, accumulation of power in their project. So, how does this relate to Pharaoh? Well... Uh, we see that Pharaoh is repeating these same mistakes, these same mistakes that go all the way back to Cain, okay? Uh, uh, Pharaoh inherits the richest land in the ancient world. Every year, the Nile River would flood, and it would enrich the soil with its nutrients, ensuring that there was continually, continual fertility in the land of Egypt. Egypt would never suffer from over-farming, uh, and nutrient depletions, as pretty much every other civilization in the near, ancient Near East did. 
Egypt would not also not be dependent on rain as other civilizations in the ancient Near East were. But despite all of these incredible blessings that God had given Egypt, Pharaoh looks around and what does he see? Scarcity. He sees the growing Israelite population and he doesn't see God's blessing. Instead, he sees people who threaten and could hurt him. It never occurs to Pharaoh that a growing Israelite population could be an asset to him because, hey, if an enemy were to invade, you know, maybe this big population of strong Israelites might be a good thing. Never occurs to Pharaoh. Instead, he enslaves them and he builds what? Cities for storage. He builds cities for storage because he's worried that he doesn't have enough and he needs to save. So Pharaoh just like the builders of Babel, is shown to be foolish. As the tower builders aspire to reach up to heaven, twice the text tells us that God has to go down to investigate. Their dreams of unity are easily dashed by God. In the same way, we see Pharaoh's schemes being continually thwarted. The Babel builders wish to make a name for themselves, and yet they themselves are nameless. It's even hard as I write this sermon to know what to call them. The men of Shinar or the tower builders or the Babel people. You don't even know because they're nameless. In the same way, we don't know Pharaoh's name here. He's never told. There's a huge debate over which Pharaoh this is. But we're not given his name. Why? Because we don't need to know Pharaoh's name. He's the same. All petty tyrants are the same. The midwives, we know their names. The text specifically makes a point to tell us the names of the midwives. Why? The midwives are clever. They're surprising. Tyrants, all the same. And so this common thread of the foolishness of Cain, the builders of Babel, and the Pharaoh, is all boils down to one word, fear. Fear that God's provisions, that God's abundance and fertility is not enough. Despite all the evidence of it around them, despite God's desire for blessing, despite God's very character of consistently demonstrating uh, his provision for fertility, flourishing, and life, despite all of this, all of these examples, Cain and the tower builders and pharaohs, are all imprisoned by a fear. A fear and a fear that there's not enough, not enough protection. God's protection isn't enough that God's provisions aren't enough. They live a life of anxiety, which leads to their irrational decisions and resulting, sadly, in horrible abuses of power. They believe that their fears justify their immoral actions. And it all begins when they buy into this myth that there's not enough. Now, At the beginning of the sermon, I said that God and Pharaoh are being set up in contrast to one another, representing two approaches to power. The story of Genesis is one of abundance and blessing. Pharaoh's story is one of anxiety and fear, seeing only scarcity. A belief in a world of abundance leads to what? Generosity, to community. A belief in the world of scarcity leads to oppression and violence. We see it worked out by the uh, irrational and crazy uh, uh, actions of the tower builders and of the uh, Egyptian pharaoh. 
When we read the story of the Bible, we find that the story of abundance and blessing is one that goes throughout the Bible. We see God bringing manna and quail into the desert, water out of stones. We read stories of the prophets that tell of the wilderness blooming. You heard today from uh, one of these passages, from that beautiful passage in Isaiah that I read in our call to worship. But nowhere is this theme better demonstrated than the life of Jesus. Listen to how John puts it in his majestic introduction to his gospel, which of course is John's creative retelling of Genesis 1. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Fullness, abundance leads to not just grace, but grace upon grace. It's amazing there. And Jesus' whole life is a ministry and ministry is a demonstration of this myth, of this fear that, 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 that there's not enough, that, that this myth of scarcity that people are, too, are often foolish to believe. Instead, what does Jesus do? Jesus looks and says, drop your nets here and you'll find all the fish you want. Jesus says, bring me a few loaves and fishes and I can feed 5,000 people. He looks at a tax collector and he said, there's a better way to life than exploiting the poor. He tells stories that imagine a world of generosity and neighborliness because that's what the kingdom of God looks like. That's what the kingdom of God has been about since the beginning. It's been a world of fullness and abundance. Even a tiny mustard seed can become the full, or can become the tallest of trees. Fullness, grace upon grace. That's Jesus's uh, 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 ministry. That's what Jesus is trying to proclaim here. That's what Jesus is saying. God's kingdom looks like. Now, what does that mean for us? Don't be Pharaoh. Okay, sure. Um, that's true. Um, it does tell us about the importance of uh, how we exercise power. You know, whatever power we have in whatever part of our world, do we exercise power always in relation to fear and anxiety, in, in relation to scarcity? Or do we use our power to provide abundance, grace, neighborliness, giving to others? See, we've got to have that mentality in our head. What is the number one command in the Bible, the most often repeated command in the Bible? Don't fear. Don't be afraid. Pharaoh is afraid, and that's why he acts the way he does. That's why it's so important for us not to be afraid, to actually believe that God has provided for us, that there's enough, that this whole fullness and abundance stuff in Genesis is actually like true. We've got to be the people who believe that. And so our call to action is those who proclaim the new creation has broken into the world. As those who are called to be the resurrection people and those who lead Jesus' revolution is to embody this life of grace upon grace. And doing so will require us to leave behind the world of fear and scarcity. We must reject the way of power of Pharaoh. Instead, we must be a people who truly believe in the fullness and abundance of God. And that's hard. I get it. That requires faith because everything is telling us otherwise. It requires great faith. It requires us to look at the facts and joyfully know and trust that God is good and he loves and provides for his creation. And that requires a lot of things. It requires imagination. 
It requires the imagination to contemplate the world that is an alternative to the fearful one that we have been led uh, to believe in. That's what the parables were all about. That's what allows us to experience life and receive it with joy and thankfulness. It requires us to contemplate the world's mystery and beauty and to revel in it, not in a fearful way, but in a way of awe. Uh, it requires us to shake loose from the percep- perception that we don't have enough. And that requires trust that our generosity will not be in vain and diminish us, but will instead extend and provide for others this glorious vision of the kingdom. This is what it looks like when the kingdom of God breaks in. We have been given grace upon grace. We have been given a blessing. And the fullness from God, which comes, is inexhaustible. Let us believe in that. Let us share that. Let it motivate us to great acts of generosity and let it provide us with joy. Let us practice resurrection. My phone is froze up. I can't pause the recording. Okay. Interesting. All right. Uh, any uh, questions or comments today?